0: Good morning. My name is Pastor John, and I'm glad that you're here worshiping with us today. The question I have for you today is, what is your life about? What is your life about? What is your goal? Now, when I say goal, I'm not talking about the kind of questions that maybe you got when you were younger, or if you're in school, or if you're in college or something, or just getting married, I'm not talking about what's your specific life plan for the next five years. That's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking, what is it that you live for? What is the driving influence, the main purpose, the primary goal of your life? There's many different answers that people may come up with to answer that question. If someone's in a very desperate life situation, they may honestly say, my goal is just to survive, to make it to the next day. But I think for many of us, particularly in this context here in America, if you were to ask the average person what your goal in life is, they would probably say to be happy. My goal is to be happy. Now we may define happiness differently and it may look different, for different people. How we get there may be a different path, but we want to be happy. I think many of us come into life expecting that we will find happiness. We live our life striving for it. The founding documents of this country talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We make many of the decisions we do because we think if I make this decision, it will get me to a place where I can be happy. And I think having that idea in mind. That's human nature. But the question that we're going to look at today is how would Jesus answer the question? What his goal, what his purpose was? What is it that Jesus lived for? We've been going through the gospel according to Mark, and we've been learning about who Jesus is when we gather together here on Sunday mornings. Our passage today is Mark 10, 35 through 45, and it will tell us what Jesus lived for. The particular episode, little story we're looking, we could also find in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 20. But here in Mark, it's going to tell us that Jesus expected suffering in this life, and he calls us to serve others. Why does he do this? Because he tells us he came to earth not to be served, but to serve and to be a ransom for our sin. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. That's Mark chapter 10, big 10, verses 35 through 45. So Mark, big 10, little 35. You could also use the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. We will also put it up on the screens. Mark 10, starting in verse 35. And once you are there, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's word. And for long, I'm going to read our passage for today. Mark 10, I'm starting in verse 35. Verse 35 says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him, they came up to Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41, And when the ten, the other ten disciples heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, teach us what your purpose for life is, what your purpose for life was when your son Jesus was here on earth. God, We want happiness, our own self-pleasure, but your son knew to expect suffering in this life. And he knew that the way to live was to serve others. Teach us those lessons, not from something we have to come up with ourselves, but out of the great truth that when Jesus came, it was not to be served, but so that he could serve, especially by being a ransom, by paying for our sins. I pray, God, we'd see clearly who your son is and what he did for us that enables us to live a life in service to others. May Jesus be our focus this morning. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So again, we're looking at the question, what did Jesus live for? What did Jesus live for? And instead of expecting happiness and pleasure in life like we often do, Jesus expected suffering. Jesus expected suffering in this life. When we get to this passage, Jesus is on his way toward the greatest suffering that could ever be experienced. He's with his disciples and they're journeying toward the city of Jerusalem. When he gets there, he is going to be arrested, he's going to be tortured, and then he will die in that city. That is where he is heading. In fact, in the passage just before this one, he predicted that all of this was going to happen to him. If we back up to verses 33 and 34, Jesus says to his disciples, "'See, we are going up to Jerusalem, "'and there the Son of Man will be delivered over "'to the chief priests of the scribes. "'They will condemn him to death.' deliver him over to the Gentiles, the authorities, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. The good news is after three days, he will rise. That's what Jesus, that's what's in his mind. That's his expectation. But unfortunately, after telling his disciples this is gonna happen, we have another example here of the disciples not quite getting the picture. They're not quite putting the pieces together. We've seen this repeated pattern throughout again and again in this part of Mark. Jesus says, hey, this is what's going to happen to me. And the disciples don't get it. They don't quite understand this time. It probably especially hurt because it was two of his closest disciples, the brothers James and John, who come up to him. They asked Jesus to honor their request, their favor. In our text, verse 35, James and John, the sons of a man named Zebedee. They came up to him, said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They wanted to take care of themselves and their own interests. They were looking out for their happiness. Perhaps they thought, well, we're on our way to Jerusalem. This is maybe when Jesus is going to take over everything. This may be the last chance we have to pull him aside and ask him for a favor. Maybe part of them knew, maybe Jesus won't like what we have to say. Mark's gospel presents James and John saying it. Matthew adds the detail that it wasn't actually them who said it to Jesus. They got their mom to do it for them to bring this request here. Regardless, though, in our passage, Jesus agrees to hear what they have to say. In verse 36, he says, what do you want me to do for you? But something really interesting is in Jesus's words there, because this exact phrase, what do you want me to do for you? We'll see again in the passage that we'll look at Lord willing, next Sunday, the very next one that we'll look at. It sets up a contrast for us. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? James and John say, we want positions of glory. But look ahead to verse 51 in our passage. In verse 51 in Mark 10, Jesus is talking to a blind man. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Let me recover my sight. In our passage today, James and John wanted honor and glory that they thought they earned and that they deserved by being close to Jesus. They were focused on Jesus' great crown of glory to come, but they missed the fact that he had some work to do on the cross beforehand. On the other hand, next week we'll talk about a desperate blind man who cried out to Jesus for the mercy that he knew he didn't deserve. But for now, we're on with James and John. So they asked Jesus, we want to be seated in places of honor. In verse 37, they say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. When you begin your glorious kingdom reign, Jesus, we want to be right next to you. When people look at you, they see us right beside you. And we could easily critique them, but let's give them some credit here. They are correctly understand Jesus is the Messiah, the conqueror, that he's going to reign and rule over everything. They grasped that correct, but they misunderstood how God's kingdom reign was going to come. They thought as soon as they got to Jerusalem, immediately Jesus would take over everything and set up his kingdom. But they'll discover that now's not the time for that. That comes later. And their request is incredibly selfish. Jesus just said he was going to die, and they said, okay, that's great. But when you get there, what is going to happen to us? They're asking for what they want and not thinking about what God wants. They expected that following Jesus is going to be joyful. It's going to be easy. And they were completely unprepared for the suffering that was to come. They also had a pretty inflated perspective on how important they thought they were. They thought we are essential to this whole enterprise coming together. The truth is Jesus would use James and John, but he didn't need them. They did not grasp what a leader of God's people needed to be. And so Jesus will have to tell them in the verses to come. Before we move on, though, there's also one more ironic thing here about verse 37 and their request to be on his right and on his left. Uh, I read this in scholar Danny Aiken as he wrote about it. He said, At the time of our Lord's greatest glory, there were indeed men on his right and left, but they were not two apostles on thrones. They were two criminals on crosses. There would be men on his right and his left, but it was when he was dying to pay for our sin, not in this king, immediate kingdom rule that James and John expected. Jesus tries to prepare them for it. In verse 38, he responds to James and John by saying, you do not know what you are asking for. He knows his glory, his reign is coming, but it would only be through and after a judgment of suffering. And so he asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I'm to be baptized with? Are you able to experience this suffering? Well, let's talk about those words cup and baptism, though, real quick. By cup, he's referring to the cup of God's wrath. He's saying there's coming a moment when I am going to receive, I'm going to take. You could say I'm going to drink God's wrath, his judgment against all wrong in the world. I am going to do that so that my people will not have to. That experience that Jesus had of taking God's wrath was the absolute worst experience that anyone on earth has ever, will ever, could ever experience. The worst experience in the entire universe. Jesus is getting all of the sin all at once, and God is pouring out his righteous, good anger on that sin all at one time. For each and every sin, Jesus is taking that anger, that wrath, that justice. Jesus knows that's going to be so bad that he himself asked God, if he can get out of it. We see this in chapter 14 of Mark. In chapter 14, Jesus is praying to God and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, this cup of wrath and judgment that's coming. Take it away. But he submits and says, yet not what I will, but what you will. So in a moment, James and John are going to claim that, yes, they can take this cup, but the reality is it would be impossible for James and John to take the same suffering that Jesus did. They will not die to pay for the sins of everyone who comes to know him. Jesus also, though, would describe this as a baptism. He says that it's a, a baptism in the sense that He is going to be washed over with God's wrath, overwhelmed by the flood of God's wrath. He has this divine, unavoidable appointment with the flooding wrath of God. As he says in the Gospel of Luke, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus knew from the beginning where things were going. He was expecting suffering. But he also knew that this cup of suffering would come before his crown of glory. And this baptism would come before he experienced eternal blessings. Now, James and John don't know that he's talking about that. So in verse 39, they boldly, or perhaps more accurately, foolishly say, yes, we can take it. They said to him, we are able. They thought they were strong enough to do it. And if you've never read the Gospels or heard the story of Jesus, let me give you a little spoiler alert. They were not strong enough. They were not able to do it. They may have expected a hard battle, but they were unprepared for the suffering that would come. They were unprepared for Jesus, their leader, to suffer and die. When it came, when Jesus was arrested, James, John, and all the other disciples ran for their lives. Jesus knows they're going to do this, but out of his love for them, he doesn't condemn them for being foolish, but he honestly tells them about what's going to come on him and what's going to come on them later after he is gone. The rest of verse 39, Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In other words, if the disciples expect to follow him, they can also expect to experience suffering. Unlike Jesus, they won't suffer to purchase salvation for others. That won't happen to him. Jesus did that once for all. But his followers will suffer. We can see this in the rest of the Bible. James is one of the, aside from Judas who betrayed him and committed suicide, James is the first of the 12 disciples to die. About early in the book of Acts, he's executed by the governing authorities. John, his brother, would suffer prison, torture, and exile. All of the other of the original 12 disciples, they would be killed for their faith. They would suffer. Even then, though, to answer their question, Jesus says that suffering alone won't determine their placement in heaven. Jesus defers to God's authority and God's already prepared plan from eternity past. He says in verse 40, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Saying, "I, I don't even, I don't have the authority to override God's plan, even if I wanted to. Jesus is fully 100% God, but each member of the Trinity, the three persons that make up the one God, has unique roles. The Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying in this case, God the Father is the one who made the plan of how everything is going to happen. He's the one executing that plan. He will determine who receives positions of honor. So this is this conversation they have. But what does that mean for us? How do we apply or take that to our lives? Well, if we consider ourselves to be a part of God's people, if we're going to follow him, then we have to do so without knowing what exactly our reward will be. We have to follow him with humility, which keeps us engaged in pursuing God and his kingdom. And as we pursue him, we should expect suffering in this life. Because when we suffer for Jesus' sake, that prepares us for future glory. Those who followed him grasped this message. One was one of his disciples, Peter, finally understood it. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He so says, We can rejoice when we suffer, because then we can rejoice even more when he returns. The apostle Paul talks about how his goal in life is to know him, to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul speaks he's going to share in his sufferings, he's going to be like Jesus in how he died, but the result will be that glory of being resurrected, having eternal life with him. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we should expect suffering. I realize that's a really downer way to kind of start the message, but I'm just going in the order the the passages here. And we need to be honest that we shouldn't expect to find perfect happiness in this world. We shouldn't expect, yes, every desire I have will be fulfilled that I can accomplish all my dreams, all my goals, everything that I ever wanted can, can come together for me now. That shouldn't be an expectation we go into life with. In this life, we should expect to suffer as Jesus suffered. That should be an expectation in mind. And if that's true, then how do we live? So Jesus changes our expectations here, but what do we live for then? Well, Jesus shares with his disciples that his people are called to serve Others. Jesus calls his people to serve others. To serve others. Now, this conversation with Jesus, James, and John, it didn't happen alone in a corner. The other disciples were nearby and were told in verse 41 that when they hear it, they become indignant, which is an understatement. They're angry, greatly displeased that they would say this, probably because they're jealous and ambitious men themselves. Perhaps they're mad they didn't ask Jesus first. And the reality is they don't understand what Jesus is trying to do either. So Jesus sees that there's this anger going on, and he takes this moment to pull all of his disciples aside and to tell them that they are to humbly serve others, not lord over others. He tries to help them overcome the blinders that the rest of the world gives them. He says in verse 42, Jesus called them to him, said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, the people who do not know God, people who have no relationship with God, what do they do? How do they live their lives? Well, he says they are the ones who lord it over them. They're the ones who domineer over others, try to control people for their benefit. He says they're great ones. They're high officials. They exercise or flaunt their authority over others for their own benefit. That's the way the rest of the world works. But he says in verse 43, it shall not be so among you. It should not be that way among God's people. Rather, whoever would be first, prominent, great among you must be your servant. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. This is very similar to something he said back in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 35, he again sits down and calls the 12 and says to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. In another place, Matthew 23, he says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He says, To be first, we must be last. To be exalted, we must be humbled. In our passage, to be great, you must be a servant. God's people lead and live by serving others. Now, when he speaks about this, he's not saying that there shouldn't be any authorities on earth. He's not saying we should burn down all authority structures. Jesus will say human authority is a good thing. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 12. But the key difference is Christians, God's people, those who follow Jesus, they should claim and exercise authority in a different way from the rest of the world. I liked this quote from the British pastor J.C. Ryle. He said, true greatness consists in devoting ourselves, body and soul and spirit to what? To the blessed work of making our fellow men more holy and more happy that our work is to make others holy and happy. It's those who exert themselves, and the use of Scripture means, it's those who put in the effort to lessen the sorrow and increase the joy of all around them. They are the ones who are truly great in the sight of God. The key difference between how the rest of the world leads and lives and how God's people are to live is that Christians live to serve and bring happiness to others. Now when I say happiness, this isn't happiness in how each individual person defines it, because each person could have a different definition. Look how Ryle puts it. He says in the middle there, more holy and more happy. It's happiness in holiness. It's happiness in being close to God, living out his intention for his creation. That's how Christians are to lead, how every Christian is to serve Jesus, how they are to live their life on this earth, living to serve others and so that's a challenge to us do we live that way do we live to serve others or do we live for ourselves that's the message the rest of the world tells you is to look out for yourself you can even hear it in people who open this book and twist the words to say that i once heard a a well-known prosperity gospel preacher a prosperity gospel means someone who says uh the bible is about what's good for you first and foremost and not about god But I heard this preacher say that he expected people to treat him better than others because he was closer to God. That's what he said. This was in a book that he was reading there. And that is a horrible violation of these words of Jesus here. And coming from a pastor, he's supposed to serve and care for the people God has entrusted to him. God's leaders serve others, not expect to have people serve them. But it's real easy for me to point at somebody else and say how wrong they are. Let's take the moment to look at ourselves, for me to look at myself. Let us examine our own hearts. How often do we think, insist, or, or demand that we deserve to be treated better than how we are being treated or than someone else? In our own sinful hearts, we like to be treated well. We like to be served by others. It feels good. And you can see that this is in your heart, particularly when you do not get your way, or when you blow up at what in the grand scheme of things may be a minor offense, when that server gets the order wrong, when that church member says something you don't like, when that family member won't do what you want them to do. We reveal our hearts that we really want to be served rather than serving others. What are we living for to be served or to serve. Now, when I'm talking about this, let me caveat it a second. When I'm talking about serving, I'm not talking about things like somebody using these verses to sinfully abuse someone or, or letting other people take advantage of you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about putting in a good faith effort to always place the interest of others above your own. Pastor Ryle, again, gives a good example of this. He says, Blessed is the man who can sincerely rejoice when others are exalted, though he himself is overlooked and passed by. That's what it looks like. When others get what you want, are you able to rejoice then? Those are hard words. But Jesus isn't done. He takes it one step further in verse 44. He says, Not only are you to be servants, But he says, whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. He takes it one step further, not just a servant, but a slave, the lowest of the low. Now, I realize slave is a very loaded word in our context. So when Jesus is talking about slave, he's not talking about slavery as it existed in this country. That was a system that was sinfully based on the color of skin and kidnapping people from other parts of the world. That's not what he's talking about. And again, When he says slave, he's not saying that you have to say yes to literally anything someone asks you to do. That's not what he's saying, no. He's challenging us, though, that we should live in a way that we're willing to give up our own rights for the sake of others. We give up what we think we deserve so that we can serve others. Because a slave is someone who has no rights. A slave is someone who has sold themselves to do what someone else wants. Jesus says his disciples should aspire to that kind of life, a life lived to do what someone else wants. Primarily the Lord, first and foremost, sure, but here he says how that works in others is living for their interest. That means we don't defend what we think we deserve, what we think we're entitled to. We sacrifice that right in order to serve others. And here's that big contrast between what he's saying and what James and John just said. James and John asked, can we have positions of honor? They wanted glory and honor on this earth. Jesus says, actually, the way for you to get that, James and John, is to lose glory and honor on this earth. One pastor, Jason Meyer, said, Jesus does not rebuke the quest for greatness. He doesn't tell them it's wrong for them to want glory. No, he redefines the quest by redefining greatness. He doesn't say to them, you shouldn't want to sit next to me on my right and left. That's a good desire. He says, you're going about this, though, the wrong way. True, we should want to be great, but true greatness is not about how high we climb. True greatness is actually closer to that game, the limbo. It's more about how low can you go. That's what Jesus is saying. Low to go, humble yourself. That is the way you find greatness. It's okay, it's good to want glory and honor in eternity. But the way you get there is by giving up glory and honor now. That is the position that God directs his people to take. But that's not what we see in the rest of the world. And good examples of that type of service are often hard to find. But we can find them if we look for them. And today, after all, is, is Father's Day. Father's Day. So I was trying to think of examples of someone who had this kind of service, so I'm going to talk about my father, and he's not here today, so he cannot stop me, and I can say whatever I want <laughs> about him. if you're visiting, and my father's one of the elders here at the church. And as I was reflecting on this, I thought he's a model to me of putting others first. I'm actually going to, to expose some of his secrets to you. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this, but when we have a church gathering with a meal, he does everything in his power to make sure he's the last person to get food. And then after he does that, he eats it as quickly as he can so he can jump up and refill people's drinks and throw out their trash. That's what he does there. I think that's a wonderful example of service. Now, let me be clear. He's not a perfect man, but I've seen him time and time again go out of his way to put others first and I've especially seen that in what he's done for me from when I was little and I picked for my instrument at school the biggest one I could find the tuba and we live a couple blocks from school and every day I needed it he'd carry my tuba from (laughs) home to the school but I've also seen it even now he respects my opinion and my leadership here in the church even though I lack his years and his experience to me he models what paul says in philippians 2:3: do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves more significant now it's very hard to live that way and we cannot do it without help Jesus has told us we're to expect suffering, we're to serve others, but there's a reason why Jesus says that, and there's a way for us to do it too, and Jesus expects that, calls us to do that, because he came not to be served, but to not serve, I put ransom, because, just to throw you off if you're trying to guess my blanks. You don't know what I'm going to put in the blanks <laughs> of the outline there. Yes, he says in the passage, he came not to be served, but to serve. But the main way that he served us, as he tells us, is he was a ransom for us. He died to pay for our sins. We're able to serve others. We're able to be a slave for others' interests because of the one who served us. And this last verse here, verse 45, this is the key verse In Mark's gospel, this is why Jesus came to earth. He came to be a ransom for us, to give his life as a ransom for sin. Let me read it. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the central tenet of our faith. Jesus' death on the cross was a substitute, a ransom. It paid our sin for us. This was something that was predicted long before Jesus. Back in the Old Testament, it looked forward to this suffering servant, the savior who would come to God's people. In Isaiah 53:11 it speaks of this servant and says, "Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant, what will he do? He will make many" to be accounted righteous. He will make many people righteous. How does he do that? It says he shall bear their iniquities. He shall carry their sins. He shall be a ransom for them. Jesus died on the cross as a payment to free us from our captivity from sin. Sometimes people talk about Jesus like he's an example. He's such a great example to us of suffering. Yes, absolutely. But He actually did something in that suffering. He is the only one who can make us right with God. He died to pay the judgment that our sin, our rebellion deserved. His death on the cross, the Bible tells us satisfied God's wrath. God is holy and good. He has to punish sin and wrong. If sin and wrong was allowed to continue, that would be awful. So God has to act. And for us, the way he acted was instead he put that punishment, that pain, that suffering on Jesus Christ. He paid God's justice so we would not have to. And that's the reason he came. That is the reason Jesus came. Not to give us this wonderful example, not to give us the Bible, not to teach us wonderful things about how we live. Though he does all of that, the reason he came was to pay for our sins, to ransom and save us us. The reason Jesus died, it was not a death. It was not a a death that was an accident. It was not a mistake. It was his plan and his purpose all along. Because of what he did, we are able to be saved. It is the only way that we can be saved. Everyone who knows God has a relationship with him. Everyone who finds themselves in heaven owes that only to Jesus Christ. We sang a wonderful song right before I preached about Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And that language of looking at Jesus as the Lamb of God, we see that in one place in the book of Revelation. There's crowds of people in eternity there before Jesus, the Lamb, and this is what they say to them. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take a scroll to open its seals. For you, Jesus, you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God. This was from every tribe, every language, every people and nation. You've made them a kingdom of priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Why is Jesus worthy of praise? Why do we sing to him when we come here? Because he was a ransom. This is the most important part of the Christian faith. If we get this wrong, we do not understand true Christianity The Apostle Paul will write in 1 Corinthians that I delivered to you, Corinthians, as first importance, this is the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's not the end of the story, though, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. But that truth, he died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and all that is in accordance with God's word. That is what is most important. Because this is the central truth that guides our lives. If we know this, if we've turned from sin, embraced that, then Christ has paid our debt. We have complete, full, total access to God forever that can never be taken away because Jesus was our ransom, our payment. The sale is final. There is nothing else to be paid. He has saved us. But of course, I have to ask, do you know that? Do you know Jesus in that way? Did he pay for you? The way you can know is that if you've turned away from your sin, if you've turned away from it, put it behind you, and trusted in his ransom for you, you know it if you've said, God, I admit, I know that I am a sinner. And I, I turn away from that and said, I believe, I trust in you. I commit To you, God, I confess that you are my Lord and master. That is how you know him. That is how you realize that his ransom can be applied to you, that you can be bought out of slavery to sin into an eternal relationship with God. And if that has happened to you, that's also how Jesus changes us so that we're able to serve others. We want to serve ourselves, but because Jesus did that for us, he makes us able to show his love, his humility to other people. When he works that change, then everything looks different. It means if we're going to a room of people and we're looking for the genuine follower of Jesus, it will probably not be the loudest person in the room. It won't be the person with the most earthly power, influence, or authority, No, it'll be the one who best loves others and serves others. Now, that's a very upside-down perspective because when you step out of these walls, the rest of the world will tell you you need to be strong, you need to be powerful, you need to be in charge. But Jesus' people value serving others, and they're able to do it because his sacrifice for us changes everything. It changes who we are. One last verse that speaks to this is in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, I put a little bit before and after to kind of get the context here. But this is Peter writing to believers. He says, If you call on him as father, who judges impartially to each one's deeds, how are we to live? We should conduct ourselves with fear, with reverence throughout the time of our exile, our life here on earth. Why? Because we know something about our past. We know that we were ransomed, we were purchased, we were saved. From what? From sin, yes, but he also says from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. The foolish things you used to believe, Jesus has bought you out of that as well. He didn't buy that with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. What that means is that if we have been ransomed by Jesus, if we've turned from sin, believed in him, if he's saved us, then he has bought us out, not only of sin, but also of the way the rest of the world thinks. And when the rest of the world says you need to be the most powerful, the strongest, the biggest, the loudest voice, we've been bought out of that. We don't have to live in that lie. We're now free to expect suffering in this life because we know we're living for Jesus' glory in the next life or when he returns. And instead of living for our own rights, our own happiness, we can live for the good of others because we know that Jesus has already taken care of our eternity. We can serve others because we have nothing to lose. Our future is secure. Jesus alone has ransomed us from sin. And that makes him worthy of all the praise, honor, and glory that we can give him.